you know, it's like we we sit around sometimes as as embodied beings thrust into the the enmeshment of of flesh and the world. You know, mm. the stuff uh, Heidegger would write about a lot. Uh, you know, with you know, there is no man apart from the world. Man arises within the world and expires within the world, and all things are brought within that context. It's, very good dude, obviously. Like, uh, not on a personal <laughs> level. He was a Nazi, but uh, his brain is good. Um, sort of that striking out of the Platonic notion of, you know, how you can, you know, Plato with this whole idea that you can abstract something out of the flesh of the world. And Heidegger's like, no, you you simply can't. Yeah. Uh, and how that, you know, that, that bakes into it um, sort of the inherent existential terror that this means that you will expire within the world. Like, it, it's part of part of the nature of that that process it's good ultimately because that means craig will die but but you're assuming that he's not some sort of like a gnostic entity which oh, is fuck. like invading our plane of existence oh fuck he's like uh he's like uh azathoth he just sort yeah. of uh burst through the apertures of reality yeah but you know that gives us an opportunity because you cannot have the heroic without the alien right the hero has to go beyond the familiar and defeat the alien on its plane right otherwise it's not a hero it's just some guy so we have actually craig is is here to help us fulfill our nietzschean potential That's so now true. You, and, you and i have been given the opportunity to you know transcend and take the fight to craig in order to go over, one must first go under. We can only achieve eternal recurrence through eliminating Craig and his native plane, just like the ending of It by Stephen King, where they fight a spider. <laughs> I saw this meme, you know, the <laughs> new, um, uh, the fucking stupid template with girls with a time machine, boys with a time machine. Yeah. So it's like this basic template sucks because it's like inherently sexist. Because the yeah. girls always do something frivolous and the boys are like serious, whatever. Have you ever met boys? That's like the opposite of how that would work. Um, like I would go back in time to high five 17 year old Keanu Reeves or something stupid like that. Um, but then I saw the offshoots of the meme are really good, like the ironic manifestations and then the post ironic manifestations. And I saw one of them where it's just Nietzsche with a time machine and he goes back and he says, yes. And on the other end, there's Nietzsche with a time machine also saying yes. That's great. Kind of ties in the <laughs> eternal, eternal recurrence. <laughs> I, uh, I I think obviously the best version of the meme is uh, the one where it's like girls with a time machine. It's like I'm your great granddaughter, and the other one's like really. And then it's boys with a time machine, and a guy's like Cliff, switch seats with Lars. <laughs> because yeah. that's that's much closer to how it would actually get used if i could make sure that metallica kept yeah. uh cliff burton easy it, someone would be like why don't you stop fascism and it's like i don't know i don't think that far ahead like I, I'm, I'm not gonna act like this is valorous it's definitely a frivolous waste of the time machine but god damn it i love metallica like i just want i just want good bass on metallica and it's funny because like we, we we rag on Lars a lot in the metal world, but you know, obviously you, know, you you dig a little bit deeper and you're he's he's like the Ringo of metal and that you're actually a big old dipshit if you don't like him. Yeah, like, but also but also he makes it easier to, to detest him. Like he oh, seems yeah. to feed off our, our hate and, and derision. 
it's it's something that I think people outside of it maybe wouldn't get. There's very much a symbiotic relationship between uh, hating Lars and also loving Metallica. Yeah, you can't it's have one a, without the other. It's a it's a natural perfect hybrid. Yeah. So uh, welcome welcome to your death sentence for this week. Um, in the back half of the episode, we're going to be talking about uh, the no- uh, the novella uh, "To Be Taught If Fortunate" by Becky Chambers, who. This is sort of an example of one of the things that I was most excited about with um, like bringing a new uh, season of the show out in that this is a writer whose name I've seen around, but I was not I this is the first thing that I'd ever read by her. And I basically only did so because Eden was like, we should read this one. It's both like short so you can knock it out quick, but also it's fucking great. Yep. Um. And, you know, looked it up and she got nominated for the Hugo for this year. And while sometimes uh, a warning, Hugo discourse incoming, um, oh, the fact no. that <laughs> the fact <laughs> that the Hugo is a uh, the only fan voted major award within the sci fi world is both its greatest blessing and greatest curse for all the yeah. obvious reasons. You can't have something like the sad puppies and the angry puppies arising if it's not a fan vote. Um, but likewise, you can get a bead on what people are reading and what people are resonating with and not necessarily just critics and other writers. And so that's, you know, there is pluses and minuses to it. And thankfully, it exists in a context where you have others that are more uh, peer driven. You have others that are more critical, uh, critic driven. So like you can this is why things like the Triple Crown are so um such a big deal within sci-fi because it means that like every vector has validated you critics peers fans all of them Mm -hmm. um but yeah her her name's been in the hugo circles for a while and i just had never gotten around to her because my reading list is too long and i need um thankfully like one of one of the things that i like most about doing the show and one of the things i was most thankful to gareth for for bringing me on initially is how it like forces me to actually go through my fucking reading list <laughs> left alone i'll read comic books and theory texts literally all day long and i'll complain that i'm not reading fiction that i want to um so being forced to because i have to talk into a microphone about it and then people have to hear my thoughts so i don't want to come across like a dipshit has been a, a blessing so i wanted to thank you eden for finally pushing her in front of me you're welcome i think it's a good fit because <laughs> introducing people especially to science fiction but also to books in general is one of the best highs that i know on this planet like someone coming back and saying dude i i read this book based on your recommendation and i loved it is just the best feeling ever because i know how that feels i know how it feels to to finish a really good book and even better to be introduced to uh to an author that you love and that you appreciate their voice so it's 100% my pleasure like uh, my my partner um, has been working through a big stack of books that they got recently because um, Hugo nominations came out and we um, you don't always remember to, but we try to take advantage of like when a major award comes through of like combing through who got yeah. nominated, who won and, you know, make an order. Uh, so my partner did that, got a bunch of bunch of stuff and uh, in it. One of these didn't get a Hugo um, because it's not sci-fi, but I, I pestered them until they added it. Because, uh, But reading basically my two favorite books of last year, um, who are far and away, they were pretty close to each other, but they were far and away like head and shoulders 
better than everything else I read last year. Um, one of them being Tokyo Ueno Station, which is mm-hmm. easily my favorite book of last year. It's fucking incredible. And then uh, This Is How You Lose the Time War, which is um, yeah. which won the Hugo over uh, to be taught a fortunate, which I can very much understand. Um, admittedly, it's like looking at the novella list um, for last year. That was that was stiff fucking competition. <laughs> like, I don't know how you'd shoe in another another work. And it's like you have to be wildly good to beat uh, to be fortunate if taught. But. God damn, this is how you lose the time war. It's just such a fucking beautiful book. It's um it's actually next on my to read list. Um my my own partner just just uh held it as a as an audiobook and she she loved it. So it's next on my my list. And I mean it's been on my list for yeah. years. It's just a matter of it's just a matter of um bumping it up, as they say. Yeah, it's the uh the the classic problem of like you have this big ass like it's more like a pool of books. And at any given point, there may be a couple that are nominally at the top, but like it's it's chaos. It's yeah. it's seething, teeming chaos, and anything can happen. A book that's just straight garbage can leap itself to the top. A book that's incredible can find itself disappearing into the murk. Who knows? Yeah, I I love that you just go for the twenty twenty, you go novella nominations, and it's like one blow after the other. It's like yeah. so much good shit. I don't know if you've read um. Clark's The Haunting of Tramcar 015, but he's also planning to. I think it, in two months he's releasing a new book that is probably the most my most anticipated one right now. It's called Ring Shout, and it's about a person with magic who goes hunting the KKK. That's tight. In twenties America, I think, or maybe a bit later. But it's like Haunting of Tramcar is really good. But it it was it suffered for being a novella, unlike To Be Taught, which is you know the length yeah. of it is perfect. Um, I just wanted more out of Tramcar, and Ring Shout promises to deliver that. So I'm very much looking forward to that. I hope that delivers a little bit more uh, meat. I mean, obviously it has the potential to. Um, I hope it delivers a little bit more meat than like Lovecraft County. Did I'm not sure if you read the book before the uh, before the show came out, but yeah, not not yet. We had a we had an episode where so two books came out round about the same time, and they both dealt with the legacy of Lovecraft. One was Lovecraft County, obviously, and the other one was uh, a book called The Night Ocean by I believe Michael Farber. Um, let me mm-hmm. double check real quick. Night Ocean. Uh. I'm going to be Paul Lafarge. I have no idea where I got that other name from. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can you can see what I'm good at remembering. Um, but where the Night Ocean dealt with uh, the, the main thrust of that one was a like journals are found that reveal that Lovecraft was not only um, not only nowhere close to how we perceived him, but was actually like an active homosexual man in the early 20th century, but mm. a deeply self-hating one and baked a lot of that internal confusion and frustration and self-hate into his work uh, with literary critics sort of tearing apart the journals in order to find them. And one of the big shifts in the end being that you discover that all of those 
journals were fabricated by a specific critic um, who was talking about themselves through the lens of displacing it onto this historical figure. Um, and people go mad and disappear. And it's written from the point of view of the wife of one of the critics who got obsessed with this and uh, who seemingly drowned himself in uh, a lake uh, after getting um, consumed by it. And it was just very, it was a deliberately like toothsome and messy novel. Um, and messy in the good way, in that it's dealing with lots of complex thoughts and it doesn't try to overly simplify them. It lets them remain this this tangled ball of yarn. Um, mm. And comparing that, coming out at the same time to Lovecraft County, which on paper sounds incredible. It's like we're going to take the racism of H.P. Lovecraft and we're going to invert it and we're going to try to pierce it as deeply as possible. But then you you read it and it's um, for Gareth and then eventually I got around to reading it too. It, it definitely read as a bit thin. It was a bit like they just took the idea and put that on paper. They didn't really dive into it. And the show feels kind of the yeah. same. I'm like, I don't fault anyone for that. Watching watching Jackie Robinson beat Cthulhu to death with a baseball bat um, is, <laughs> is dope. Uh, but it it becomes, you know, sort of that lingering question of like, I don't know exactly what, what we're doing here, except like, it becomes like the more women prison guards thing. It's like merely putting people of color into Lovecraft's yeah. stories doesn't necessarily feel like it disentangles um, that racism, unlike, say, like the Ballad of Black Tom, which is sort of well known in the world of Lovecraft counter reads for being a, uh, a person of color seizing up this Lovecraftian force, basically to eradicate racism in their world out of, you know, this radical loathing for, uh, for race. It's a great novel and great counter read. Sort of deliberately dancing around, um, the news for right now, because we normally, obviously, the first half we do the news, yeah. mainly because it's just so fucking bleak. Yeah. Like, I read. It. You go on. <laughs> um, I think. Okay, so I'm gonna pivot just for a sec, but I'm gonna come <laughs> back to the news real quick because I don't have a choice. It's like a black hole sucking me right. in. Um, I just finished, um, the. French Revolution season of the Revolutions podcast. Ah. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. It is by Mike Duncan. And I basically only listened to it because I listened to the season on the Haitian Revolution, which was fascinating. And I want to plunge forward towards the July Revolution and 1848 and stuff like that. And I'm, uh, I have a BA in history, but it's been a while since I did French Revolution. And famously, it's one of the most confusing events of all time. So I did a refresher. Um, little did I know, it's like 50-something episodes. <laughs> it's so long because so much happened during the revolution. And he does something really interesting at the end of it. He does like a retrospective where he talks about everything that we spent this like in his time, like a year and two months talking about. Um, for me, it took like six months to listen to it. Um, and he does something really interesting. He talks about this problem with periodization with history like this notion of the 19th century or the beginning of the revolution well reality is 
is um, it, it it conforms, right? It's it's continuous. It doesn't stop. The nineteenth century is a purely abstract concept. Or saying something like, "The fall of the Bastille is the beginning of the revolution," or um, "The Battle of Waterloo is the end of the Napoleonic era." These things are artificial, and they happen in hindsight. And then it got me thinking about our own times, specifically with the question, has the American Civil War, the Second American Civil War, begun? Right? Like, are we now in the Second American Civil War? Or are these still disparate events um, that have a narrative and have a grouping, but they wouldn't necessarily designate some sort of era, necessarily? And then I spent some time mulling this over and masticating it and thinking about it from all sorts of angles. And finally, the postmodernist in me woke up and said, that's the wrong question. Like, who cares? It, it's all artificial and leave it to like historians 50, 60 years down the line, assuming we still have the written word in 50, <laughs> 60 years down the line. And we're like, not focused... that's optimistic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we're not focused on like, how do we not drown? And oh, we're all dead because everything died. Um, Why so, won't this potato grow? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, assuming we're not doing that, you know, leave it to historians to not only bicker about it, but also use their politics and use this for their politics and use those definitions to enforce a narrative. Right now, the question is if we are on the cusp of this thing that is growing in front of our eyes, whether it's a civil war or a spat of violence, or a collapse of the American state, what, what, do we need, what ought to be done, right? If, to quote um, Monsieur Lenin, um, <laughs> what, is, what is the attitude, what is the next step that we should um, be undertaking? Of course, I'm talking about, we're talking about the shooting in Kenosha. Is that, is that yeah. how you pronounce it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean... I don't, I don't think that anybody listening to this needs us to say that it was murder. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't self-defense like this guy crossed state lines illegally. Not that the law matters. Like it's a, it's a capitalist yeah. construct. No one gives a shit. Has nothing to do with morality. But he, he crossed state lines to quote unquote protect businesses that aren't even part of his community. Um, he opened fire. On, on, on a protester and then when other protesters tried to disarm him he fired at them um killing two of them correct yeah he killed one yeah. immediately with a shot to the head um and then multiple people tried to disarm him and he fired on those attempting to disarm him killing one of the people and thank god only injuring the third person but yeah that's a razor thin silver lining yeah. And I also think that person who was injured um, lost their arm uh, as yeah. a result of, of the injury. So, the, so I, I find myself in this postmodern estate thinking about this. And the first thing I did is deactivate Facebook because <laughs> I found myself like fighting with right wing assholes, which the algorithm was floating my way, right? Because Facebook yeah. knows that hate is, is how you get engagement. So I, I, I hopped off of that. And I sat with my thoughts and I was thinking a few things. One, isn't it fascinating the gap between what culture tells us that rifles do and what rifles actually do? 
Um, isn't it fascinating that in games you get more points and you deal more damage for dealing headshots when in effect you don't really need to do that to kill someone? Like if you shoot someone in the arm, they could die. They could lose that arm. It doesn't have to be like this. We we think about it like if you don't get hit in the chest or in the head, it's not gonna deplete your HP pool, right? We are so desensitized by how these machines, and they are machines, how they actually work, and just the incredible amount of damage which they are designed to inflict on the human body. This is not a side effect. This is like yeah, what their rifle does. We even have uh, this. Uh, it's fascinating and horrific at the same time. Um, our our own grasp of the human body uh, being yeah. so fleetingly small uh, ties into our massive misconceptions about you know the function of a rifle because there's a place in your gut that you could be shot or stabbed and you almost certainly won't die. You could, but it's almost certain. You move in a couple inches still within an area that a lay person would call the guts, nearly certain uh, a fatal shot. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, uh, yeah. these zones don't match up anywhere close to how you would how you would conceive them popularly. It's like one of the most horrific things is the number of people who attempt suicide with a gun in their mouth or a gun to their head and wind up merely severely disfiguring themselves because even that is yeah, it's 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 a fucking nightmare. Yeah. So uh, we might want to put a trigger warning on this episode, but oh, I absolutely the, the, will. Yeah, the the point is not the point is not to be morbid or to like obsess yeah. over these physical technicalities, although we're all programmed to feel a sort of revulsion slash fascination with them. The point is just to come to terms with how little we understand these situations, right? Like we cloak ourselves in culture and rationality and modernity, and yet the artifacts of these same systems, like a rifle, and to quote Carl Sagan, if you want to build a rifle first, you have to build the universe. So if you want to build a rifle first, you need to build American society. You need to build modern society to build a rifle. Um, we have no idea what they do. We, we can describe it. We can, we can play with it. We can you know, pass it by like, like ships in the night, right? but we cannot come to terms with it. And if this is not dour enough for you, then I, I think that a lot of us, a more important question than is this the civil war, blah, 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 is what will you do when you are faced with violence? I'm not talking about like someone pushing you or punching you or being an asshole to you. I'm talking about machine violence, right? I'm talking about artifacts inflicting violence on you because i think that as we go forward in the next few decades um more and more of us will will experience these things which are inherently um dark to us right inherently like made up of these moving parts that we can't even um conceptualize so that so that's where the news like met me or at least one level that in, in which it met me a a one of the nightmarish things about this that I've been trying and failing to parse it actually like I had a like a bad anxiety day yesterday and this is part of what tied into it just because it hit it hits this really 
gross and tough nerve for me. But trying to wrap my head around the fact that he is the the shooter is 17. Yeah. And I think it's easy to be flippant about that and be like, he's a white supremacist piece of shit. He's, you know, a blue lives matter guy. He's a murderer. All of which is true. Like not denying any of that, but there is a broader mechanical question of we, we know for instance, that kids, because he, he is a kid. This like that, like that's where sort of this terror comes from. They don't get their ideas out of nowhere. They're not plucking them out of thin air. They're receivers of things. And obviously, you know, you still have active agented thought uh, at at that age. I'm not going to pretend that you're like an automaton. But there's a reason why we land on things like consent laws or things, even in a broader, like more ethical question rather than a legal one, why we consider certain age gaps or power dynamics in relationships Mm -hmm. to be gross is because we acknowledge that there is a difference. It's not maybe 100%, but it's enough that it's like a general rule of thumb is still useful. It's still good, and that can help us uphold certain things. And a 17-year-old crossing state lines with an AR-15, joking about committing murder prior, and then actually committing murder is... It ties into what you were saying of that question of like, are we in the American Civil War? And obviously, part two, and obviously there is, those questions are meaningless until the event comes to pass, which is one of the horrible frustrations about, and misconceptions about history in a certain way, is that history is very good at looking back, but we're not very good at looking forward, at least from a historical lens. There are other lenses that can be productive, but... If you try to gesture forward, you wind up with a million and one things called the American Civil War Part Two that either never erupt or are better understood in other ways. But there is something terrifying about a cultural engine that can bake that concept of validated valorous murder in the mind of a 17-year-old that they then carry out. And it's like, absolutely, we should be furious with him for doing this. Absolutely. There's like, he's the one who perpetrated it. You can't erase that fact, but we can't extract him from the world and make him like this. It's, it so horrifically indicting of so much more than just him that it is hard for me to parse most days. Yeah. I mean, I, I assume that this is, uh, admitting like the perspectivism that I'm, I'm a cishet white man in, in America. I'm not especially rich. So the only real vector that I can approach most things from is things like having mental illness and being on the spectrum and not being very wealthy. But outside of that, this, you know, a potential window into the existential nightmare engine that, you know, anyone more oppressed than me must face. I, I, I don't know. I, my brain short circuit. Like, yeah, I think you know this ties pretty well into the second item that I wanted to bring up um, through this question of the teenager, right, um, and the child, and what their role is in in today's um, society. And admittedly, this story has like a lot 
a lower body count because the body count is zero, <laughs> um, but it, but it still touches on some of these same points. And and this is, um, I'm not sure how old she is, but she I've seen her, I've seen people refer to her as a teenager on on Twitter and TikTok and stuff like that. She's called Gracie Cunningham, um, and she posted this video originally on TikTok. And then you know when when someone wants to be mean to someone, they don't do it on TikTok. They share it to Twitter, which is the platform where people are mean to each other. Um, in snidey ways. Facebook is where like, you argue with your aunt about whether George Soros is a lizard person or not. Um, but Twitter is where you go to like mentally eviscerate someone. Um, yeah. So she got shared to Twitter with the explicit purpose of doing that. And, and the video was, how is math real? Like, how are abstract mathematical concepts even a thing? Like, if you think about Pythagoras, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing her video. Okay, so one apple plus another apple equals two apples. That's useful. You can use it to count things. But then stuff like, you know, the hypotheses, you know, and things about um, triangles and geometry and algebra, like A, how did they know that they were right? And B, why did they even pursue this? Like, what was the use of it? And she asks it like a teenager which she is so she uses the word like a lot and she does it in a very you know um simplistic way and an upbeat tone which is totally fine but of course twitter focused on this is the dumbest thing i've ever seen what what are, what are they teaching these kids what a stupid question obviously it's algebra and it's like she had to post another video <laughs> saying, can we blow this one up instead instead of the other one? And she said, what I meant to ask, and now she's doing it in a very calm and rational and very um, more higher register grammar, you know, how are mathematical concepts validated? And why are mathematical concepts useful? And also she adds like, why are people being so mean to me? And how come physicists and mathematicians agreed with me while non-mathematicians disagreed with me? Yeah, she brought um, up in that second video a really, like, this incredibly pressing question that shows up again and again in philosophy and history of mathematics. One of the things she specifically cited um, in the second video, which she actually did roughly say in the first video, was say you're Pythagoras and you come up with y equals ax plus b, sort of the, the traditional form for how you make a line in Cartesian math. Mm -hmm. If you are the first person to ever do this, how do you go about discovering that? And if you're the first person to discover it, how do your peers validate it the way that we know that thoughts need to be validated in kind of a scientific methodological way. And obviously the scientific process hadn't been, or the scientific method hadn't been born yet, but there were parallels to it. And yeah. these are all literally like intriguing, fascinating questions that drive um, the fundamental, like one of the big fundamental conflicts within philosophy of math is, is math discovered or is it invented? And a way to parse that is, is mathematics a linguistic act of mankind, a language system much in the same way that English or German or uh, or Dutch or Japanese are, where they don't fund, like this set of phonemes does not fundamentally mean a dog, 
we're referencing yeah. a reality beyond it. Or and, is it yeah. something real in the way that like you can point at a tree and go, that thing exists. Yeah. And so the first association that I had was this really brilliant scene from Horizon Zero Dawn. Really good video game. Now it's on PC as well. It used to be a PlayStation exclusive. And I'm not going to go into the details, but <laughs> the world is basically like there's an apocalypse, a machine-based apocalypse, and a bunch of people try to save it. And one of those people who tried to save it but failed um, was a teenager. She was like this um, savant, you know, like uh, precocious genius that, that came aboard this team, and, and she was a teenager. And you find this um, lecture of hers, like, a, like an audio recording, and she talks like a teenager while she's explaining really complex um, ideas about energy and, and engineering. And you chuckle to yourself, or at least I chuckle to myself, like, haha, the tension between how she talks and the subject matter. And then right next to it, there's a data pad, and it's a note that the leader of this project to save humanity wrote to her saying, don't be insecure, don't worry about how you talk. You're the smartest person in that room. It doesn't matter how you talk. That is how you talk. And it was brilliant because the game shamed me. Right? The game said, you asshole. Right? You were making fun of her for how she talks because she's a teenager when it doesn't matter that she's fictional. In the fictional assumption, she's way smarter than you are. Right? Um, just because she was saying things the way she was saying it. And this is exactly what happened here. And don't think for a second that this is not about misogyny as well, right? She's, um, well, at least she presents as a woman. I, I don't know what, um, her orientation or gender, but she's very much a teenage American woman, right? And women and math is a classic misogynist trope, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, and she's blonde. Right? So you can add that into the list of stereotypes that, that play the part in here. The second thing is, how far have we come you know, down this road of intellectual elitism, of which Twitter is like the Petri dish, right? that we meet really interesting philosophical questions asked by a child, which is literally a biblical trope right? from, the <laughs> mouth, from the mouth of babes. right? That's literally such an ingrained trope of children asking those fundamental, super clever and super hard to answer questions. How far have we come that as a collective, we don't take this to the moment to say, oh, that's really interesting, actually. I don't know the answer to this. Or here's a good explanation. But instead, we lash out and say, this is fucking dumb. It reminds me of something I've been fixated on a lot recently, much probably to the annoyance of the people that I live with. Because um, <laughs> I'll just start, I'll just put my headphones down and I'll be like, and for another thing, Baudrillard already. And they're like, oh my God, no, please don't. I don't even know where this is, where this thought's coming from. <laughs> yeah. But um, it, it touches on something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is something that we see, uh, Obviously, the thing that confronts me with this is the internet marketplace of ideas. And we can we can and should scoff at that phrase, but it's very much something that we wind up getting enmeshed in, where we're in the nightmare confusion of a thousand barking voices and 
we tend to follow the most charismatic bark and not necessarily the most satisfying or most um, rigorous or, you know, it, it, not that rigor becomes the end all and be all, but, you know, we get we get caught up in in the social atmosphere, which doesn't which sometimes includes these other elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and something that we see even within left, even within left spaces, you on paper should be better at this kind of thing. We see this fixation more on specific language than on the thought that's being conveyed. This is something that we notice even when the speaker isn't uh, isn't a woman or, or femme presenting, even when they aren't a man, even when they aren't uh, young. Although obviously, it, it even when they aren't you know a non-white person. Although obviously, this effect multiplies far more when we can other them in some way, because then we can pin uh, the slippage of language on like, oh, it's you're undereducated because of you know some horrifically bigoted you know thought. Yep. But it's it's this mode that we see defended a lot, where what matters isn't the thought that you're conveying. It doesn't matter, like the thought, the feeling, the expression that you're trying to have. Instead, we fixate purely on this entirely artificial and like facile element, which is their specific words. And I think this is a weird overextension of a fair thought, which is that intent isn't a magic bullet. The effects of your things matter more than the intent. But we sometimes then take that to a point where intent now no longer has any meaning. We've reduced it to zero. And that is a massive overcorrection, especially when you start moving it into areas like language, where communication is predicated on intended message. It's not that the actual message that you deliver has no value either. Obviously, your specific words matter. There's a point why people study rhetoric and work on you know how to best communicate their thoughts. But faulting someone for, I don't get the idea that you're presenting to me, therefore I think you are stupid, is this wicked and malicious thing. And we, we get two separate responses to this within the world of philosophy to sort of touch on like, this isn't an even an out of nowhere criticism. Um, so we start with people like Sartre and uh, Lacan and Baudrillard, who their whole thing was the infinite flatness of the world. Like, uh, without getting too deep into it, there is, you can't separate aesthetic from essence because they are the same thing. Not because essence drives aesthetic, but in fact, the other way around, that we're aesthetic yeah. things that draw, that imbue aesthetic as though it's a lay circuitry with this energy, which gives it essence. And it's kind of backwards to how we normally think. Normally we think like some abstract form gives birth to a physical version. And they're like, no, we we live in a physical world and we deepen the world around us by giving it more breadth than it actually has. And one of the ways that uh, that is, they've written thousands and thousands of pages on that. So that's a <laughs> massive, massive truncation of the thought to, to be yeah. clear on that. But one of the ways they extend that is directly into language. Um, and that's where you get think like the founding of semiotics as a field is basically around the idea of like, I'm trying to tell you my feelings, but feelings don't have language. They are a feeling. They exist in my emotions. They exist in my brain. They exist in my body. 
I can't make you feel my feelings, but we've invented this thing, language, where I can encode, you know, this feeling means happy, this feeling means anxious, this, and we can then encode potential origins for that. I'm happy because you, you know, gave me a compliment in this trying time. I'm anxious because of the, these life events and because you did this nice thing for me while I'm feeling so anxious, I felt good. Now with, now with language, I can communicate that to you and you can break apart that language more like, like the apt visual metaphor is like I'm wrapping candy in a wrapper and language is the wrapper and the thing I'm trying to communicate is the candy. And if I give it to you and you open it up, you can get the thing that's inside. But we sometimes are very arrogant and assume that we as translators of language, we as people who receive the messages of other people, then are opening it perfectly. And the thing we get out is what they meant. Meanwhile, something like the way that people responded to that teen girl's video of like, you're just a dumb idiot who doesn't understand math. What they're revealing is they misunderstood what she was saying and then attributed their misunderstanding to her. And the fact that she was able to come back and go, okay, here's me rewording it. And not only that, but my initial wording, physicists and mathematicians were already agreeing with, you're revealing that you didn't know how to parse what I said, so you assumed that I was stupid. And this hits the two directions that sort of that linguistic dialectic, or that linguistic semiotic problem shoots. So shooting forward in time, we have, you know, people like Baudrillard talking about simulacra and simulacrum and how it produces that we basically get enmeshed in this nightmare where language is the only thing that matters. Meaning seems not to matter whatsoever. We don't, and unfortunately, socially, that seems to be true. We don't give a shit about what someone's trying to tell us. We see this in right-wingers when you tell them what bigotry is, how it works, and how it hurts people, and they don't hear it. You've said all the right words, but they won't open it in a way that gives them any kind of meaning. And that's something you can't control. That's how they are choosing to approach your words. And then in the other direction, we have someone like Hegel who talks about how well before any of this stuff was put to paper, who's talking about notions with a capital N, which is just his fancy way of saying, you need to pay more attention to what someone is trying to communicate to you, not necessarily the way they've communicated it to you. Mm-hmm. That we can get overly fixated. And we see this even with parsing the apologies of people who've done bad things, where we get yeah. so fixated on, did your apology hit all the notes that I want with the right language that I want, in the right stresses that I want, to the point that we can't see their apology doesn't fucking mean anything. The only thing that matters is contrition and then action. And measuring like, oh, they don't, yeah, they're not doing anything to fix any of this. They're not committing themselves to change their lives in any kind of meaningful way. But they worded that apology so well versus someone who words something perhaps imperfectly, but has something fruitful there and then does fruitful action. It's I don't know, that shit's been driving me up the wall because it's a bunch of people that you think should fucking know better, where it's like... And, and, I, mean, and I think that's that's a really interesting point, you know, should know better. Um, <laughs> and, and it kind of, like, drifting towards Becky Chambers, 
and to be taught a fortunate, this this entire tension that we're touching on here, and I think that this video exposes, has been going on for thousands of years, right? Even yeah. before the birth of Western philosophy, this question of what is the relationship between what is true and what ought to be done, right? Like what is morally obligatory for you to do? People can be very, very, very good at one and be terrible at the other. And the great tragedy of being a human is that those two don't follow from each other, right? The truth and fact do not contain within them morality and the good. And that's why correcting a Trump voter on Trump's record does absolutely nothing because it is not a gap of facts. There's a gap of actions and a gap of principles. Um, and, and, and this ties back to the video because it doesn't matter how she said it. What matters is that she challenged something that people take for granted. People you get who... A, yeah, go ahead. You get a teen, you get a girl, and you get them talking about math in anything less than perfect language. And for a lot of people, automatically this reads as they must be wrong. Yeah, because again, they are challenging something that these people don't know why they're adhering to. Like, I don't know. I don't have the answer to algebraic verification because guess what? You need a PhD in mathematical philosophy <laughs> to begin having the discussion on a possible answer to this question. It's a really difficult question, but that doesn't mean I don't get to ask the question, right? These are questions that for better or for worse, we all ask ourselves. We are human and I'm a postmodernist and I'm a post-humanist and I don't like humanist definitions of essence, but if I had to pick one, it would be curiosity and asking questions, right? We all were 12 and we thought about, whoa, there's a skeleton inside of me. What does that mean? How does that, what the fuck, how does that work? And like mom comes and she says, you have to do this. So dad comes and says, don't do that. It's like, why? Who made them my ruler? Wait, why are there rules anyway? We all have asked these questions. And then depending on the people that we met or the societies that we grew up in, we either got the message of shut up. Rules are rules because they are rules. and your parents are your parents because they're your parents and there isn't a skeleton inside of you. Don't be ridiculous. Or we got societies that encouraged us to ask those questions and helped us come to at least, you know, a rudimentary formulation of that answer. Um, and it's just disconcerting for me to, to tie like a nice bow around all of this and, and, and give, bring us to the beginning. Yeah. It's and, and tying in Kenosha as well. Right. And, and the shooting there it's, it's disconcerting to see how much Baudrillard, who you quoted previously, was right in that we have lost the capability to allow people to ask questions about reality. We can no longer tolerate people coming in a relationship, a direct relationship, unmediated relationship with reality. No. 
all of your perspectives about reality have to be mediated through the academy, through the media, through books, through language. They have to be mediated. And if you attempt to put your hands on the power line and taste reality just for a second, we freak the fuck out. So we can't say things like, the person in Kenosha is a murderer because that is too direct. We have to mediate it through, oh, he's not exactly a murderer. You have to understand. So same thing with the, with the math video, right? Like, don't ask why, how algebra is real. First, mediate your knowledge of algebra through these 50 books and these ways to talk and these academic um, lexicons. And then down the line in 15 years, when you've completed your PhD, you will be allowed to ask that question. Now safely mediated and behind the wall of knowledge. Um, and that's really disappointing. And I think that's also something that Becky Chambers asks in To Be Taught a Fortunate. Yeah. So we're going to break from music right now, and then we're going to head into talking about the, the book. Um, so the first song that we have up, it's a little bit of a change of pace because it's not extreme metal. I would even say this is not heavy metal, although one of the records does reference heavy metal verbal, uh, in its verbiage. Um, we're going to be playing a song by a group called Motor Psycho, who are extreme. They're like a Norwegian, like, uh, like mainstay at this point. They've been active for 30 ish years, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit yeah. less, but long, long time. They started as like, uh, in the boom in the late eighties and early nineties in Norway of very jammy psychedelic rock um, because where we had sort of the alternative rock boom of the eighties and nineties, they, they also had that in Scandinavia. But the big thing is that weird jazz and prog rock and stuff like that never died in, in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is also where we get in case you were ever wondering so many great Scandinavian metal bands and Scandinavian prog bands. It's largely because those tastes, never went away and also the other bigger bit of they have like subsidized music education um from early age because plenty of plenty of problems in scandinavian society not going to paint them as like like some liberal utopia because they're not but at least on that mark they're much better than the u.s um but eden and i were talking about this before um before the show Motor Psycho has, obviously, you'd expect over 30 years of history, a lot of different phases of their career. Yeah. And as you'd expect as well from, like, most historical objects, each phase contains a little trace of all the other ones. Like, they're not, they're never radically different, but you can still, like, clump them in certain ways. Um, and round about the beginning of the 2010s, they started leaning much more towards prog rock. Um still have lots of psych rock. They still have lots of these like long heady jams that they work into, but the general arrangement idiom leans much more towards progressive rock now than it did before. Um, so we're going to be playing the debut track off of their, uh, new record. The all is one, which came out on, uh, came out on the 28th. Um, this episode will probably not be up too late after that, but brand new track basically. um, the only thing you really need to know about it is that this album is the third in a trilogy that they were making. But like all great concept albums, the concept 
does not matter. Um, it's just a way for them to string together <laughs> the songs and make them feel cohesive. I think yeah. sometimes we get overly fixated on like, what does the concept mean? And it's like, well, it's just a way for the artists to make sure that all these songs do live together, that it's not, you know, a bunch of random tracks that, and also that the sequencing doesn't feel random. It's like, no, if I have an, if I have a story arc in mind, then I can place these emotionally across that arc and it will make sense in some way. Or at least that's the hope. So you're going to see stuff about like, oh, this is, you know, the middle of a trilogy. Do I want to jump in there? Sure. The band's even pretty open that they envision each of the three as basically standalone records, but also they're also a trilogy in the sense that if you listen to all of them roughly near each other, you're like, oh, I see how you develop on that idea over time. But they also wanted to make sure that if you just hear a track, you're not like, I don't fucking get it. Like what, what's, <laughs> what I don't, cause that's just bad songwriting. Yeah. Um, truly tremendous band. Can't say enough about them. This is uh motorcycle with the all is one.
All right, so that was Motorcycle with the All is One. And now we're going to start talking about uh, the novella To Be Taught If Fortunate by Becky Chambers. Um, again, mentioned this earlier in the episode. This was nominated for Hugo, and it was one of the books that was actually in, from what I gathered from the outside, in strong contention to win. There was a fairly tight race for, um, for the winner. Yeah. Uh, just because there was a lot of public fervor around this as well as uh, This Is How You Lose the Time War. Um, I don't remember the others off the top of my head. I was looking at the list the other day, and some of them weren't as familiar, but that may just be me not being as uh, fluent in the contemporary landscape of sci-fi than I once was. But since Eden was the one who brought uh, this book forward, and he's actually... like. Uh, friends of the Eden on Facebook, obviously, we've known each other for a while. Duh, that's how he came to join the show. <laughs> Not some fucking <laughs> rando. Um, and I've seen him talk about Becky Chambers' work a lot over the past year or two years. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to let you handle, you know, a brief bio and a brief synopsis of the book because I feel like you're going to be doing a lot better than me as a, a total outsider. <laughs> sure. So just one note about the. Um... Novella nominations. It also featured um, The Deep, written with clipping, oh, yeah. based on the um, single that they wrote for This American Life. They actually, we should talk about that at some point, because they referenced like a Detroit techno scene band from the 80s. Super fascinating stuff. It also had Afrofuturism. But anyway, um, and it was The Haunting of Tramcar, 015, and In an Absent Dream by Shannon McGuire. I hope I didn't butcher that pronunciation. Um, but back to Becky Chambers. Um, Becky Chambers is an American science fiction writer, and she's more known for Wayfarers, which is a series of books that actually won the Hugo Award for Best Series. Um, and she's done a lot of space opera stuff. Um, and to be honest, I'm really tired of space opera at this point because it's been very, very, very fashionable for the last five or six years, maybe even seven, all the way back to Anne Lackey, which I think um, she like jump-started this current uh, phase of interest in space opera that we're seeing right now. Um, and in 2019, um, she published To Be Taught If Fortunate. And it's the story of me buying this book is actually interesting. I came back from Arc Tangent, the festival in the UK, and which has like progressive metal and post-rock and just an amazing lineup. And my flight was delayed. So I suddenly had like four hours in London. And of course, what I did was I bought books because London is one of my favorite book destinations. So I went into Forbidden Planet on Shaftesbury Avenue and I couldn't find anything. Usually I find a lot of things, but I had read most of the stuff there that was interesting to me and other stuff didn't really catch me and then this really thin small book um caught my eye and it was to be taught a fortunate something about the layout and and the the title um really grabbed me and so i bought it and i read it on the plane like back to back um because it's short but also because it is incredibly gripping so the the synopsis is quite fascinating in like 40, 50 years in the future, there has been climate collapse, but humanity is pretty much around. We figured out how to um, 
claw back from the precipice. And we understood that space exploration is necessary, right? It is, it is necessary to our survival as a species. But we, didn't, we couldn't trust you know, a company or a government to get it done. So instead, humanity formed this almost kickstarted or crowdfunded um, NGO that set out to explore space. And in order to raise the funds and keep people engaged, the propaganda was very much of, you know, the PR was very much of, we're all in this together, we are all astronauts, we are all part of this great journey together. And finally, this um, company, this NGO, sends out, you know, missions of exploration, and we follow one of them. Um, the main character, I always get this name wrong, Ariadne, which is a reference, of course, to Greek mythology. Um, she is the um, woman who leads the Zeus out of the labyrinth with her thread. Um, she is our main character, and she is the engineer on this mission. Um, and it's a really fascinating perspective because she basically enables the rest of the crew in their exploration. She takes care of infrastructure, fixing the ship, um, making it possible for them to, you know, to do their job, right? To explore. So it actually breaks apart the mechanical processes of science, right? Um, and demystifies and de-romanticizes this idea of science being this, you know, stroke of genius. This guy sits in a tower alone, lightning hits his head, and suddenly he knows the secrets of the universe. Instead, it shows science as something that is, you know, methodical, incremental, and takes a lot of tools in collaboration. Um, so we follow this mission as they travel from planet to planet, and they travel in coma. There is no FTL. So they have to make like really long, really long tracks, um, and they sleep while they do so. And while they sleep, their bodies are being modified to react and survive and adapt to these new destinations. So, for example, the first planet they go to is dark, like completely dark, as in Pluto dark, so far from its sun that it gets very little light. So the reflective nature of their bodies. Um, is modified so that they basically glitter in the dark and with very little light provide a source of bio-illumination um, and, and stuff like that, which is a fascinating concept. So we follow these guys through their journeys and um, the other element, and that's where I'll stop because I don't want to spoil the ending because it's such a good ending, um, is that they start to get infrequent communications from Earth. It is obvious that things are not in stasis back on the planet. And as they wake up, they start to um, receive troubling messages that might hint at the fact that there's nothing to go back to. So that's kind of the synopsis. Um, and I want to touch on two things, one which I've already mentioned and one which I'll broach now. And I'll start with the second one because it's much simpler. Um, and I just want to say how refreshing it is to see a book with real diversity in um, gender and age and romantic orientation, but that all those stuffs are an aside. 
They're just a fact. Right? They're yeah, not I, constantly. Yeah. I, I, I adored that about the book. Uh, we yeah. get, we get these really very well-intentioned, obviously approaches towards uh, diversity in the broader realm of fiction. And it's an absolutely necessary enterprise in a certain way, because we don't always pay as much credence to how the works of the world around us temper our imagination and they temper how we conceive of what is possible or how easily we conceive of what is possible. It's not that it becomes impossible to think certain things without work because the world isn't magic. It doesn't work that way, but it, it does open a, a creak open a door a little bit more. Uh, it makes you a little bit more capable of thinking this way. Um, but yeah, every now and again, those works can be a lot more thudding, like thump you in the nose in a very sort of cloying way that doesn't, yeah. that ultimately feels like more women prison guards, that, that classic tweet. Um, and the fact that this was very blase about there's a trans character, there's older characters, there's um, char queer characters that are both um, ace and more traditional like thoughts of what constitutes queer in terms of being like uh, gay or lesbian. And as you said, it's just sort of there. Like they don't, they don't have a lengthy thing attempting. Becky doesn't attempt to justify like, here's, here's the queer character and here's why I'm, they need to be. It's, it's refreshingly utopian in the sense that it envisions a world where this doesn't need to be remarked upon, which I think is ultimately a lot more normalizing than like, hey, you're different, and let's point at you and say that you're different. You're valid, but you're different. But you're valid. You're not like me. You're an other, but you're valid. Um, yeah. Which seems well-intentioned, but counterintuitive to the end result that that kind of thing wants to achieve. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. So just to, just to put it out there, there's Jack, who is a trans man, and actually his, his hormonal balance and treatments are part of soma forming which is what it's called when their bodies are being adjusted as they sleep and it's just a thing you know just something to be taken into account um chikondi is asexual and the text is like always um you know it puts their relationship as important as the romantic relationships because there are romantic relationships on the ship but it's like i don't love chikondi less because we don't have sex um and elana is older and she's very, she has traditional men, you know, a, a character, uh, attributes associated with men, right? Um, she's aloof. She's unemotional. She, she gets angry, right? Instead of talking about things, she lashes out. Um, and just, it's perfectly normal. It's just who she is. Um, so just to, to tie a knot around that first part, it's so refreshing to, to read a book like this. And, and the second point is, this whole idea of changing the human body in order to go into space. So science fiction does historically a pretty bad job at thinking about the human body in space, right? Um, the classic example is Star Trek or Star Wars. Like these people encounter conditions, realities, technologies, and people that are so different than the human, and yet they all look and work basically like us. So they have the force and 
what the fuck are they called? Mitochlorides or whatever. Metachlorines. Metachlorines. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry for <laughs> insulting the, the high art that is Star Wars. But um, as you can tell, I'm not a fan. But going back to Star Trek, same thing. Like up until, what was it? Voyager, I think. All the relationships on Star Trek vessels were heterosexual. Right? There were hints at like, homosexual relationships, but it was always a joke. Um, and even beyond that, I think Voyager might be the first time where the human form is inherently changed. I don't know if you watched that episode where Janeway and Paris go over the warp 10 threshold and they devolve into lizards. Um, it's a very good episode. It's also very weird. <laughs> so I, I, yeah. my, my, my memory of uh, Voyager is, is uh, very thin. I remember trying to watch it when I was younger and I just didn't really click with it. Uh, I do remember the one where they trap a clown in a nightmare real, a nihilistic nightmare reality of dreams. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a good one as well. So and I just remember being like eight and being like, what the fuck did I get to see? <laughs> um, hey, it's still better than that deep space nine episode where they play that game. And they have to sing while they play it. Anyway, um, going back to Chambers, Star Trek was weird. She does something a lot more interesting and says, look, we will need to figure out what is the possibilities and the story and our relationship with the body when we go, if and when we go to space. Because just saying, yeah, just keep things the way they are, it's just not going to work. And that brings up a very famous and often misquoted Deleuze and Quattari quote, we still don't know what a body can do. Right? We are still on the cusp of thinking about our bodies and their potentials. And space is actually a really good place to um, you know, shake our foundational understanding of the body so that that for me was like the main clever thing that this book did just how can we change our bodies and our relationship with it to go further and faster and farther than we've ever gone before i meanwhile for me so obviously that that part i thought was um satisfying to me but at least on a personal end i've read enough post-humanist stuff and yeah. transhumanist stuff that these these spaces are, are are satisfying to me as a longtime reader and fan of science fiction but the thing that i really gravitated to the most in this book was and this is ironically a counterpart a counterpoint to something you said in the first part it felt like a book about mediation to me mm -hmm. um specifically and you mentioned this a little bit in your initial description of the book that we have, so one of the great paradoxes of the world is how mediation of thoughts and reality is both this frustrating, derailing thing, and also simultaneously a deeper and truer way of understanding the world. Likewise, we have the inverse of this is frustratingly equally as paradoxical and true, which is that um, directness, which you can see in anything from like the great man hypothesis to you know, direct quotation to the Ubermensch and things like that is both a more vitalist and thus more powerful form 
of approaching and comprehending the world, while at the same time having certain irrepassable limits that it will it simply can't ever overcome. And the weird tension of both methods, which are the opposite of each other, both being the best and worst method um, for approaching and understanding the world, is probably the nexus from where uh, that philosophy comes from. Like, we only have sat and parsed, tried to parse the world as deeply as philosophers have for literally thousands of years. Basically, since the dawn of mankind, people have sat around and gone like, wait, but... But the opposite of what you just said is also true, but what you said is still true. How the fuck do we navigate that? And they're like, that's a yeah. great goddamn question, man. I don't, mm, let's invent new thoughts now. Um, that ironically, the type of mediation I'm talking about is it's precisely the communalist approach to both society and expansion that I saw in this book that I thought was um refreshing and exciting, especially if you've read a lot of hard sci-fi. And this does situate itself closer to hard sci-fi than soft sci-fi. Yeah. Um, so to delineate those terms for people that are listening who maybe have heard them either used in weird ways or haven't heard them before, it's sometimes thought of that hard sci-fi is about the science and soft sci-fi is about psychology. That's not really a great way to put it because hard sci-fi books have psychological depth all the time and soft sci-fi books have stuff about science fairly frequently it's more that hard sci-fi is predicated more on nailing down the science in a certain way it's very like engineering minded uh and not like approaching problems even on a narrative level the way that like a mechanical engineer might approach a problem meanwhile soft sci-fi is willing to smudge those corners a lot more in order to accomplish just like accomplish the narrative goal. Mm -hmm. And there's no right or wrong there. It's, you know, depending on where the direction your book is thrust, questions about the real processes of science and math are going to be less pressing to you um, because they just aren't as narratively important. Like if you're talking about a divorce, you don't need the science of the engine to work right. That's just not that's just not important. Um, meanwhile, if you're talking about, as Becky Chambers is, it's a really clever way to approach hard sci-fi because she's talking critically about the process of science and the way that we understand science on a cultural level, which yeah. makes it then hard sci-fi because it's critical questions about the realms of science. By um, touching back on a favorite author of ours, Ursula Le Guin, is one of her critical comments as she's one of the most astute people who delineated um, science fiction and fantasy with like useful critical terms that are also really easy to grasp. Um, where both of them require on some level us asking something about the world to not work the way that it currently does, but a science fictional mode then at some point asks questions about mechanics and fantasy largely either largely doesn't or largely gives us a set of mechanics that just wouldn't mesh with the world as an indication that what matters more is this imagistic or like imaginary realm that you can access through one mode and the other is more about science and engineering questions so through that you can have someone like brian sanderson not a huge fan of his writing but he at least does fit this mold who writes more science fictional fantasy books because his books tend to be more, even though they're set in a fantasy realm, 
they focus more on questions of mechanics and science and engineering and what those the effects that those questions the answers to those questions have on the broader world meanwhile yeah. something like star wars which is set in space and has spaceships and all this is better understood as a fantasy story because they don't they don't care about those questions it's about this mythic arc and this mythic charge and so this has this very interesting approach to hard sci-fi in that as you're mentioning it challenges this weird notion of like Newton alone in his room, of Leibniz alone in his room, of Einstein alone in his room. And corner when they try to comment on the more communal nature of uh, things like science and math and also broader questions of how do we progress society if there is yeah. a teleology to society. Um, and the question they're doing these things, but they're grounded. And this is where the uh, counterpoint comes in. They are strongly mediated by the world that they arise out of and that inevitably their works must flow back into. It's, it becomes the uh, the river, ocean, cloud metaphor. There's no part of that process that's more important than the other, but you do need all three of those parts. Like, it doesn't. If the clouds go away, this process doesn't work. If the ocean goes away, this process doesn't work. Um, now, contrary to someone like Ayn Rand, who takes this thought and runs with it, with like <laughs> what that means is that if great men leave, you're doomed. Yeah. Becky leans more on. The socialist understanding of these things, which is that the body, like capital B, the body of of the world, of the universe, of society, of communities, like you can make this as big or as small as you want. They will naturally produce these figures who make breakthroughs at like at at some kind of rate. This is the nature of what bodies and evolution and time do. So you don't because of that, what matters more is that communal relationship. You don't have to worry as much about, oh, you know, our, we got to preserve our big heroic geniuses who are, who are the masters of reality. Um, ironically, this actually gestures back to Nietzsche in a way that um, people who have never read Nietzsche don't seem to get, and people <laughs> who have do, which is that you have recurring throughout Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He's continuously talking to the animals and gesturing to the fact that he came out of the world and part of the role of the laughing lion is, you know, to, to live within the world. It's not this Ayn Randian fantasy of like, and then the, the master hero scientist blasts off to Mars and Elon Musk builds himself a future citadel on a, like that's. <laughs> and you see that even within their concerns on the ship, as much as they're enthralled by the work that they're doing, they're as much, if not more, concerned with the context in which it arises. That's, this is why, as the novel goes on and the frequency of contact with Earth starts diminishing, why it causes so much profound anxiety in them. Because they never lose sight of the fact that they're not doing this for some abstract notion. It's not science for science's sake. Yeah. It's science for the sake of mankind. And we, we sometimes mistake that of, Oh, well, if it's not for its own sake, that means you can't do like, well, you know, what is this pure mathematical thing? Do? Maybe it's not utilitarian, but, and 
Becky thankfully answers those qualms, I think, in a way that's very satisfying. And it touches on what you said, is that curiosity is a natural part of humanity. And so there is a kind of communal function to satisfying curiosity. It's just that you no longer understand these approaches to science or math as I'm doing this for some narcissistic thing. It's more, I want to share this information with other people because other people may resonate with this as much as it resonated with me. Maybe there's no utilitarian purpose. Maybe we don't get anything out of it in that kind of sense, but we can all, you know, bask in that kind of glow, which answers a critical question about more socialist approaches to hard sciences that you get from capitalist types. We're like, you'd never get innovation if people aren't just banging shit together at random. And it's like, <laughs> well, admittedly, we all love banging shit together at random. There's a childlike verve to that. But it's the question of why am I banging it together? And her answer uh, is like, first I experience and then I share. And both of those are important. It's, yeah. ah, I thought it was so lovely. <laughs> I think it is lovely, and I think it's it, it's also a question of, like, from the other side of the equation, the motivation to even begin this exploration in the first place, right? So going back to this man in a towel um, metaphor, which actually comes from Michel de Montaigne, right, who famously sat secluded in a tower until he finished his essays. Guess what? He had a scribe. Someone brought him food. He didn't sit alone in a tower and write the essays. We know this because he had manuscripts that other people took to the printer and corrected and proofed and did all that stuff, but they are invisible, right? And somehow their work, their labor is not essential as his creativity and skill. Now, I'm not saying that Michel de Montaigne wasn't a creative and skillful person. He was incredible, but his genius only came about or was able to be shelled because these people worked around him. And if we go back to science, this idea that um, experimentation happens is done by the scientist, when in fact, even as early as the 18th century, when the scientific method was just being codified into social processes, you already had laboratory assistants, people who did the grunt work on the math, people who helped design the experiment. And then, you know, the glass blower who made the bottle into which gases were pumped so that we could measure the formula. And yet the scientist is the spark of genius and their motivation is their own aggrandizement, their own fortune. And also this abstract notion of progress and driving humanity forward. Whereas with to be taught a fortunate and, and chambers, and we'll talk about that title in a second because it fits in here quite neatly. Um, the, the, the purpose of exploration is essentially non-egotistical. Think about the difference between SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, and this NGO which launches space exploration in the novella. They are polar opposites. SpaceX revolves around Elon Musk's ego and aggrandizing him as the savior of humanity. By the way, just a side note, you know who else saw himself as a savior of humanity? Jeffrey Epstein. He had this science fiction yep. vision of himself 
as someone who would propagate his DNA across the galaxy. I am not making this up. Google it. Um, he was a science fiction nerd and saw himself as this like Highland-esque savior of mankind. Whereas in Chambers, the work is done together. The work is done not for the aggrandizement of the researcher and not by the researcher alone. There is a whole trellis, a whole lattice work that supports the scientist. And it, it might be how Ariadne supports her fellow um, shipmates, how they support each other, how the NGO supports exploration, um, period, and how humanity creates this company, and, and so on. Science is recontextualized into this communal thing, which it always was. I, it was always collaborative, because that's the only way to do complicated science. And yet, the elements of that collaboration, and quote-unquote, the extraneous parts of it, like laboratory assistants and mechanics and factory workers and other skilled and unskilled um, laborers, also, by the way, a false dichotomy, um, are erased, erased from the story of science. It and, becomes this really yeah. great modal um, illumination that she does on one of the innate powers of hard science fiction, specifically hard science fiction, that gets overlooked a lot by people, especially critics of it who tend to view it as... Um, overly nerdish or like it's more fixated on answering a math problem than on telling a story and all these other kinds of critiques that you see. And it's precisely something inherent to hard sci-fi is that hero going off to the distant planet, whatever. We're just going to pick that for an example. The ship that he's in, did he make that ship? And if the answer is no, then it's who made it? How did they make it? What did they make it out of? And then how did they discover that you could make that out of it? Because, you know, you couldn't always go faster than like, who figured that out? And what research did they build that off of? And how did they know to go to this place? Who figured out where they're going and how to chart the path to get there? Because bodies move over time to the point where a fraction of a degree uh, in your theta being off in space travel means that you get flung out into the wild blue yonder and you never come back. And so there's inherently one of the modes of hard science fiction is that strong sense of mediation, that strong sense of grounding things within the context of the world, that there is no spaceship without an engineer or without, as you mentioned before, without people working in the factories in order to pr uh, produce the raw materials for these things, without the miners who get it, uh, without the people who discover that you can use these minerals to make these things. Um, and the way that she taps into that very explicitly through the book, like there's passages where it's a bit more subtle and there's passages where she deliberately is focusing full paragraphs on it, I thought was this really profound, it's as much a counter to people who undersell the power of hard sci-fi to talk about socialist themes of the perpetuity of the labor class. That that's the one thing that humanity will never actually be rid of. We may transform what labor looks like. We may transform, ideally, how we treat the people who commit labor. But this communal task of perpetual labor doesn't seem to dissipate. And the way that she re-knits all of these people together into this, as you were saying before, each mediates the other, but not in a way that lessens anybody. It's a way, it's, you start mm -hmm. seeing, if anything, it's raising up 
the people who before would have sunk into the background. Like, the book's very clear. It doesn't view these four explorers any less than a book that would have, you know, hero scientists might. It's saying, what it's saying is everyone who got them there is just as important as they are, because if the machine didn't exist, they wouldn't be here. It's sort of like we get, um, you know, for a while we had this discussion of, you know, like, uh, I forget the name of the people who discovered the helix or who we credited with discovering the helix yeah. uh, in DNA. And then it was revealed that Rosalind, and I'm forgetting her last name again because I'm very terrible with names, um, <laughs> actually is the one who discovered it uh, in the lab. And then we get comments from her where her response is basically, no, don't give me sole credit. I was in a laboratory full of people. The, yeah. the big problem is trying to pick the one specific person who discovered this about DNA. And it's any one of us could have found it. We were all searching. That's why we credited it to, or why we wanted to credit it to the team. And these two motherfuckers who were the head of the lab took personal credit. Don't give me the personal credit because that notion of personal credit is antithetical to what we're doing. Like, like what you mentioned, and it's ironically, we mentioned this before, it's both the blessing and the curse of the Academy. In a perfect world, this would be a good thing about the Academy. The fact that everything is mediated through each other. It is no longer, I, the great genius philosopher, have made this brilliant insight because it's only validated through all of my equally brilliant peers, double-checking what I said, running it against other thoughts and other uh, contexts, and going, this holds up. Without them, what I'm saying would be useless. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we don't live in that ideal world. This makes this book an interesting counter to the reaction that we saw to the teen girl talking about mathematics, in that She's asking very valid questions. And in a properly functioning uh, scientific approach, one would look at the meat of what she's saying and go, there's validity here, and I can explain this on an easy level, a medium level, a higher level, whatever you personally need right now. But <laughs> we don't live in that. Um, unfortunately, we live in the one where Academy <laughs> turns into a series of buzzwords in order to gatekeep people out of knowledge as opposed to a way to focus group um, specific points of knowledge, which was yeah. a secondary refreshing bit about this book where I'm like, oh my God, I wish I lived in this world. <laughs> like, yeah. So I think that's a really um, good segue into my last point. Obviously, I have like 50 more points, but <laughs> we got to, as with all these books, we got to wrap it up somewhere. And I think yeah. the final thing I want to say is how refreshing it was to read a book that is hopeful about the potential of science and yet is not hopeful in a blind sense. And again, without spoiling the ending, the ending leaves a lot of questions open on whether this was worthwhile, whether this had any purpose at all, and whether this was a noble expedition to begin with, whether resources were better used elsewhere um, you know, to maintain humanity or make things better on the planet. And I think, I, I, I'm not sure if Chambers chose this quote um, on purpose to display this duality, but to be taught if fortunate actually comes from the inscription on the Voyager Golden Record. And if you don't know what this is, this is one of the greatest follies and 
amazingly beautiful things that humans have done. It's so stupid and so amazing <laughs> at the same time. This is a vinyl record placed on the Voyager satellite, which even then we knew would um, exit the solar system. Uh, specifically, it's it's aimed at Gliese 445, which is 40,000 years away in, in real time, 1.6 light years. Um, and we said, hey, if, if this is going that far, well, potentially, and leaving the solar system, let's put a record on it that would introduce uh, people to humanity. And of course, they put incredibly Western and colonial things on it, like Da Vinci's conception of the human body and mathematical equations with you know English letters on them and stuff like that. And the message codified in a lot of different um, languages. And it opens um, like this, and I, I'm, I'm quoting. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of the four, uh, of, sorry, of the 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, do you though? Um, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. We step out of our solar system into the universe, seeking only peace and friendship, uh, sure, to teach if we are called upon, to be taught if we are fortunate. We know full well that our planet and all its inhabitants are but a small part of the immense universe that surrounds us, and it is with humility and hope that we take this step. So before we talk about who this secretary is, um, let's talk about the quote, which again is stupid and amazingly beautiful. <laughs> it's stupid because you do not represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth. You represent a fair share of the states founded on the planet, which is light years, pun intended, from almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet. Um, and then your humans, peace and friendship is not is not our forte, right? It's not what we do best and not what we are likely to export to the galaxy. But to teach if we are called upon, to be taught if we are fortunate is such a beautiful concept. Um, so with a lot of humility that the rest of the quote um, doesn't have. And, and, and then the hope and the humility into this immense universe is, is really touching and moving. Until we bring like another complication into here that the guy writing this is someone called Kurt Joseph Waldheim. Um, and if you'll be a bit stereotypical, you might form that name sense where this is going. Um, he was the Austrian, um, he was an Austrian politician and diplomat. And then he was the fourth secretary general of the United Nations. And then the president of Austria in 86, but he was also in the Wehrmacht, um, where he served in an officer role, which he lied about. He said that he left the army in 1944, but he actually left in 1945 after he was promoted to be an Uber lieutenant. And he was um, attached to German Army Group E, also known as the group that um, slaughtered um, thousands and tens of thousands of um, Slavs in Yugoslavia, and of course um, ran a concentration camp, the Yasanovich concentration camp. Now he, of course, claimed that he didn't know about any of this and that he never he never heard anything. But then we have um, testimonies saying that um, prisoners, and I'm quoting from a report here, prisoners were routinely shot with within only a few hundred meters of his office. 
and that office was stationed 35 kilometers away from that concentration camp. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, no one, this... no one, no serious historian actually believes he wasn't fully aware of what was going on. It's it's literally sort of like a laughable hypothesis when people try to, because yeah. you do every now and again get certain people being like, no, he wasn't that, he wasn't yeah. that bad, and it it touches on a very that um, heinously dark poetic juxtaposition touches on something that we run into a lot in the world that is um, one of the biggest misconceptions about the world is that it doesn't tolerate contradiction when in fact <laughs> it seems to love nothing more than paradox. Um, yeah. If anything makes perfect system systematic ordered sense, it seems like that's the first thing to stop existing. We even get that like a loose nod to that with something like Gerdell's incompleteness theorem. Um, and so the fact that he was able to pen that, which is if you cover up the name, a beautiful sentiment, one that not only falls to ruin, it falls into like psychopathic horrific ruin once you start looking at who the fuck is saying this. And yep. it touches on this, this nightmarish reality that Nazis had dreams they contain beauty in them they contain the capacity for virtue and insight and they're also nazis it's like they had want... they had dogs is the is the thing i always go with they had dogs and they loved their dogs we try we try broadly this is a broad social statement admittedly but i think it's not untrue we see this a lot uh pretty much everywhere we like to view virtue and wickedness as a single sliding scale. And you do some things and you get bumped up, you do others and you get bumped down. And we can eventually sum all of these things together, all the pluses and all the minuses to get an ultimate moralistic value or virtuistic value of a person. And nothing about reality, unfortunately, works that way. These are all basically independent columns that sometimes they touch each other, but they never cancel each other out. They never add to each other either. They just sort of sit next to each other the way that buildings in a city sit next to each other. They contextualize each other. They, to go back to a thing we've been mentioning all this time, they mediate each other very much so. The fact yeah. that that motherfucker was a Nazi definitely changes how his comment reads. But the fact that you can cover up the fact that he was a Nazi and get this profound sentiment is one of the darkest and most continuously frustrating components of being enmeshed in the dasein of the world is that these things simply live together and it's our psyches alone apparently that want them to all add up and fucking mean anything but yeah. nothing about the world gives a shit about meaning so it's like yeah. no these can just coexist fuck it it's yeah, like well, that sucks <laughs> Yeah, totally. And I think that's the tone that the book ends with. It's the tone of, and I'm, I'm going to quote Linkin Park at the outset here. Um, I, I tried so hard and I got so far, but in the end, it didn't even matter. And the book posits that as a question. Like, you try, you go to space, you research, you find these amazing discoveries, but then you look back what you left behind and the earth and all those things that are supposed to contextualize your science, as we said, like it doesn't live in a vacuum and those things are falling apart or have they already totally collapsed? I'm, I'm getting close to spoilers here. Um, 
but it doesn't matter, or does it? Was it worthwhile the time you spent discovering these things, or with, or is the Nazis like, is it always there and it can't be ignored? Can you recontextualize the beauty of that quote, or will the blot of who said it always rob it of its um, hopeful glory? I think it never really spells out any of this, the, the book that is, and that is is its greatness, right? It kind of leaves you with those thoughts as the book ends pretty abruptly, right? There's no ending, forget happy ending. There's no like, it doesn't tie its narrative um, its narrative thread. And that's why this book um, really made an impact on me because it just left me with these questions about hope and science and good and evil and our struggle within them and, and why why we struggle. Um, so for that, I, I, I absolutely adore it. It does that thing that good, that good literary work, and I mentioned this, um, this split in uh, the, the uh, sort of standalone side episode on, on Ishiguro that came out last week, um, that obviously we get this sort of dumbass split between literary and genre fiction, and without getting too far into it, one, it's a split that no one really takes seriously, but it's also one that has a little bit of a kernel of truth, although it's better perhaps to think of it as literary versus pulp fiction. Mm -hmm. um, in that pulp is primarily driven, we can define it as something driven by the plot, driven by spectacle. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, you can encode a lot of symbolic information in that. It's not a weakness, it's just a mode. And literary stuff broadly is more concerned about witnessing and presenting things. It's not really interested in answering these questions for you. We run into problems with that sometimes with people who are less media savvy um, or media literate who consider a work good or bad because of how it does or doesn't answer certain broader questions of homophobia, of racism, of the progress of science, of the value of a human life, you know, any number of those topics, some of which are more charged than others, some of which are more important to specific people than others. But broadly speaking, literary work as we conceive it doesn't have the hubris that an artist would be able to answer these questions. And that's a big thing that people seem to forget is that ultimately every movie that you love, every poem that you've read, every novel that you've enjoyed is largely not written by people that are, you know, astute, like academics within this field or something, nor do they have to be. They're made by artists, they're made by people. And so having the expectation that they will come in and save the world with their brilliant insights doesn't really understand what they're doing properly. And so one of the powers of literary work in general is to have a human to human, let's work through this together. And I don't know where it's gonna land, I don't know what insights we'll have at the end, and I'm not arrogant enough to presume that where I land will be the correct spot, but we can look through this stuff together. And I really, really love that about this book. That sort of became one of the things that drove me away from science fiction and fantasy for a stretch, is that obviously it always has this capacity to be ruminative, but also humble. It's mm -hmm. one of the things that I love so much about Ursula K. Le Guin, her yeah. insights strike so deep because she is always so humble about them. She yeah. presents them without, she, she isn't like falsely humble where like I'm a dumb idiot and here's my thoughts. She's just like, <laughs> 
I'm a person who has thought and dealt with these things and I can model them in my work in this way, but there's a chance I'm wrong. There's a chance I'm missing something. And maybe it's something that you have that I don't. And that adds a power to it. And it's one that I thought was very much present here. Definitely. All right. And so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I obviously Eden recommends this book because he came in, uh, <laughs> recommended it to me. Um, but yeah, as someone who's never read her work before, I can sort of like strongly recommend it to other people. This sort of very, I don't want lovely, I've been saying that a lot. I don't want that to be read in like a gendered way of like, oh, it's a female author. So I'm going to call it lovely. It's more that yeah. the, the approach to it is so, it's not that necessarily just the lightness to the touch because it's, it's not light at all in certain spots. It's very much the opposite of it. Yeah. It's, she does that great thing of self-complicating and self that self-critical component that I like so much in work. And that reads to me as like being intellectually honest mm -hmm. that, that that's what I love in literary work. And that's what I loved in here is that, there is at any given point when she presents something, she attempts to counterexamine it. And I, that's, ah, it's, it's so rare and so good when you run into it that I'm like, ah, ah, this, ah, this is, ah, this rules. <laughs> <laughs> it suddenly made sense to me. I was like, oh, of course this got fucking nominated for a Hugo. That's, this, this is great. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to end off with something that is of a, a fitting emotional timbre, I think. So another group to put out a, a new record uh, this past week is Ulver. Um, there is almost no point doing a full biography of Ulver because they changed just so much. They've been around yeah. about as long as Motor Psycho, and also they're from the exact same country as uh, Motor Psycho. Um, <laughs> total fluke. Um, but the brief briefest example is they started as a black metal-ish band. Uh, if you listen to their record, their early black metal records and stack them against other black metal records of the early yeah. 90s, they sound pretty different. But also, if you had to pick, if you were only given one genre tag for them, you'd be like, I guess black metal. Um, that differentness seemed to be more the center of the band than anyone thought, at least initially. And this revealed itself over the rest of their career where there's definitely a through line. You can stack any Ulver record and put it next to any other Ulver record. And there's this, there's this single image of what constitutes compelling work to them. And that's always seems to be present. But the exact genre that it manifests in changes sometimes a little and sometimes a lot record to record. You have more explicitly progressive rock on something like blood inside, but like a very contemporary, like post Radiohead, post porcupine tree kind of uh, yeah. progressive rock. You get trip hop and stuff within uh, the marriage of uh, the marriage of heaven and hell. Um, uh, there's the William Blake one, whose name I forget you get, you know, you have glitch techno on some EPs. You have obviously the early black metal. Um, you have really somber and like just, Oh, uh, folk, folkish, prog folk. I don't know what to call it on Shadows of the Sun. All these many, many angles. And most recently, they've been exploring a like a synth pop direction. Again, it, even. Yeah. 
it's it's again it's something that you listen to it and you stack it against any other record and it's very much overdoing um synth pop and cold wave and dark wave and things like that but it's I don't know. It's, just, it's, it's, it's satisfying to see them. They're one of those groups where, like, I don't give a shit what direction they go in. I just want to see them do stuff. Like, the record they put out with Sun, uh, Terrestrials. Gets, I love that record. It's so underrated. Right? It's like, I, that's what I was about to bring up. Like, anyone else puts out that record, and we'd be talking about it forever. But because it's over, it's like, eh. Oh, another another brilliant record. Okay, <laughs> they have a they have a record of covers of psych record uh, psych rock from the '60s called Childhood's End. Again, any other group puts out that record, like Ty Siegel puts out that record, we're going to hear about it forever. But then Olver puts it out. It's like, oh, you just uh, really brilliant contemporary reexaminations of this work that we wouldn't have known influenced you, but in retrospect seems so obvious. Ah, oh, whatever. Um, you have like a drone record with drone activities that uh, brilliant, brilliant group. They're a legendary group. Anyone who, um, who knows them the minute that I said like, Oh, we're playing something from the new Oliver. They're already like, okay, get to the fucking song. I want to hear it. Cause I already know they're great, <laughs> but doing this more for people who haven't heard it can't impress on you enough. How, how brilliant Oliver are yep. um, consistently over time. Uh, so the song we're going to be playing is the closing track off of their newest record called Flowers of Evil. The song is called A Thousand Cuts. Uh, largely chose it because as I was listening through for, you know, music to play for this episode, um, I was listening through the new Ulver record and the lyrics of this one and the, the timbre of it. That's the way that everything enmeshed itself together felt just like uh the novel felt to me or the novella felt to me yeah of it presents um hope and despair um the confusion between the two then uh, it hits all the same emotional points but in this completely other in completely different frame and also it's just a beautiful song so it just seemed perfect um yeah their new record is out now strongly encourage you to get it because again brilliant group this is over with a thousand cuts This is the story of two young lovers on a beach Who found each other by the end of the war They set out to explore the bodies on the shore And what they found, it would hurt them with fire, pity mixed with pain. The waves came crashing. 
swept them away Confessions written in the sand The pleasures of the Just 